and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we are going all the way back to the mid-1930s. It's been a while since we've done the old ones, so. Yeah, well we've been caught in, in genre land for a while for... Well, not for as long as we were planning to be, but for October, we were doing a lot of horror stuff. And then before that, I don't know if I could be wrong, but it feels like we had a lot of like episodes uh, sort of themed around a topic rather than a era. Yeah, that's so, true. It's been a while. Yeah. Coming back to I think our first few episodes were like time period specific and not topic. So it's nice to come back. That's right. So, Yeah, we're going all the way back. Although neither of us, I noticed, like, your two are from 1934, my two are from 1935. We were very neglectful for 1936. <laughs> or 1936. So, and I Nothing. think my favorite film from that three-year span is from 36, by far. It's Modern Times. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. But I was like, yeah, I have other stuff I want to talk about more this week. <laughs> That's fair. So, I think this is, like, maybe one of the first times, and this is, like, I don't know why anyone would care about this or I'm even talking about it, but I find it interesting where we've had a uh, span of years and like one year was just not covered at all. That's true. Well, yeah, I think it's happened before, but it is. It's a rarity. It is like nothing really jumps out at me from 1936. Honestly, I'm just like being put on the spot. Modern Times is the only one that's even coming to mind. Swing Time is from 1936, if you're a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers oh, yeah. uh, musical fan. Uh, the Walking Dead, the really good Boris Karloff movie, which was actually a Warner Brothers production and not a Universal, which is kind of interesting historically. But um, and what was the Oscar winner? Was that Mutiny on the Bounty? That would have been... Um, was that 35? That was 35. That would have been the great Ziegfeld Oh, okay <laughs> which is like eh, it's not like the worst best picture winner ever but it's certainly not the best yeah it's not as good as mutiny on the bounty so yeah that's fair okay yeah so we're we just have a couple picks each for you guys this week um i pretty much went just comedies <laughs> you got yeah. a little bit more of a mix in there so that's well good. i have a more of a mix but i have like if you went comedy, we both kind of went fun movies. You went comedy and I went like, I don't know, not adventure is not the right word, but there's a certain comic book quality sort of adolescent entertainment to I think both my picks. Um, and why not? Let's segue into the first of them. Uh, the 39 Steps, Alfred Hitchcock. I knew as soon as we were doing mid 30s, I wanted to do a Hitchcock film because this is really the moment where Hitchcock starts to transition from being promising young British filmmaker to ooh, this kid's really special. Uh, he makes the man who knew too much the year before. Uh, I would maintain that the original man who knew too much is better than his own remake in the fifties. That later film is maybe more polished and has more production value and bigger stars, but there's something to be said about that black and white Swiss atmosphere in the original film. And also that Peter Lorre is a much better villain than some guy as he's known as from the 1956 <laughs> version but i didn't go with the man who knew too much i went with 39 steps which comes out a year later and for my money when it was made would have been the best film hitchcock had ever made up to that point and i don't think he would have topped this till i would say at the earliest 1940 maybe with rebecca and if not that then into 43 with shadow of a doubt my personal opinion I love the 39 steps. I think it's one of his most exciting and entertaining films. It very much plays to me almost like what, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark of its day, where it's just like scene after scene of like set pieces and excitement and danger and daring and, you know, high stakes thrills and dastardly villains. It's great. I love this movie. But um, so the moment I'm choosing is comes at the end of act one transitioning into act two maybe at this point or maybe even earlier than that now that I think about it but at this point in the film uh, our main character in classic Hitchcockian fashion is on the run he's the typical wrong man a woman is turned up in his apartment dead they think he did it he has to go on the run to both clear his name and uncover the sinister political conspiracy behind what's going on 
And what I love about the, uh, the moment I want to talk about is the reveal of the woman's body. Cause it's done in a really creative way where we know she's dead earlier. We see her in the room, but we then leave, we go off on our character and he's on the train trying to, you know, flee the scene and uncover the mystery. And then we cut back to the, I presume landlady or maid or whoever it is who works in the guy's building, going into the room and finding this body and screaming, except we don't actually hear her scream. We see her yell, like making the expression of a scream and we hear the sound of the train blasting through uh, on the tracks. And then we're back on the train with our main character. And I love this for a lot of reasons. One, on a just a sheer level of pacing, I think it's a really effective way of bridging us from one scene to the next, where it's very seamless and very quick. And I think it accounts for this film's uh, rather rapid fire pace. Um, I love it as a just creative and weird visual. Um, and I love that it's unnecessary. Like we don't need to see this because we know the woman's dead. And then the next thing that happens in the movie is that the guy, our main character, Richard Hannay, is on the train and he's listening to these other guys talk about what they're reading in the newspaper. And they read something about, oh, a woman found dead in a man's uh, apartment. And then the camera pans over to him making like a hujba, that's me face. So we get as an audience, <laughs> oh no, they found this body. The, the, the noose is tightening around our hero. But it's so much more uh, dramatically effective to have this moment that uh, visualizes that terror and creates an audio component to it with this merging of this, uh, the train and the woman's scream. Uh, and it adds that Hitchcockian suspense because then when we go back to him on the train, we know that things are actually even more dire for him than he does at this point because he doesn't know that they've found the body, but we do. So there's that Hitchcockian suspense at play of the audience being one step ahead of the hero. Um, but the main reason I wanted to talk about it is I think it's emblematic of Hitchcock's burgeoning talents as a filmmaker in terms of really playing with film form. Um, and a lot of what uh, he's doing at this period that's fun and unique to see is him taking, um, having fun with the medium and experimenting with it, combining an asynchronous sound, or actually that wouldn't even be accurate. It is technically asynchronous sound in that it does sync up perfectly with the visual, but it still doesn't technically match what's happening. And in right. experimenting with that and tricking you as an audience, because for a second you do think it's her screaming and you're like, oh no, wait, it's it's the train. And it's that sort of playful quality of like not just being an efficient filmmaker, not just being talented in uh putting together images successfully and creating suspense and danger and intrigue but in sort of deconstructing the very sort of material of film in the first place. And it's not the first time he'd done this. There's a similar bit in his silent movie, The Lodger, where you have a close-up of a woman screaming. And of course, we don't hear anything. It's a silent film, so you just see her presumably in terror. But then the camera pulls back and we see in the next shot, oh, it's she's a performer. She's singing. Um, so he'd been doing similar things to this before, but... Uh, I think you see him pushing it even further now that he has not just the concept of sound, but the actual effective sound to play with. And it does, to me, show his burgeoning skills as a filmmaker of just realizing how he can harness the medium in um, more advanced and sophisticated ways. And it's also just a, a cool little little insert there. It's a really memorable visual and sound. So that's my moment. Nice pick. Well argued. As you're as you're describing it, I was like, it seemed familiar, and then I realized that, I mean, Spielberg must have been paying homage to this in uh, the Lost World. Do you remember when at the beginning of the Lost World, where they find like the little girl on the beach mm -hmm. and they scream, and then all of a sudden it cuts to uh, to um, Jeff uh, Goldblum in the uh, subway station doing the same yeah. thing. He's yawning, yawning but we hear the train. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. And I mean, I don't, I've never heard Spielberg talk about this Hitchcock specifically, but I know, I mean, everyone knows he's a fan yeah. of Hitchcock generally. And this one seems like it would be a big influence because of its sense of like adventure and entertainment and the character being the hero being someone who's like kind of, he's kind of charming, but he's also kind of swarmy and a little bit sleazy in a way. And I, there's a little bit of that in Indiana Jones where like you like him and he's a movie star, but he's also, you know, he's a little bit dirty too. And there's a similar uh, quality to the main character here. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, I think that's a really good call that Spielberg must have been 
inspired by this moment. And I think he must be a fan of this film because it seems to have influenced his similar, like propulsive pacing of his movies where there's never, at least, especially in like his more adventure uh, toned films, there's really never a dull moment. Even scenes of exposition have a certain propulsion to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is neat seeing like a filmmaker that you're so, attuned with right like you're so familiar with because he's got this huge body of work and going back to his older movies and like you said seeing him progress these uh these qualities that he builds up over time and all these skills that he has and seeing like the first time he's using things like this Mm -hmm. it's pretty neat and there's just something about trains that just works so well with these types of movies yep hitchcock (laughs) is one of the great train filmmakers yeah he loves going back to trains he's maybe the best train filmmaker this lady on the train or the lady vanishes rather but it is about a lady on a train who then Mm -hmm. vanishes um strangers on a train uh you know north by northwest famously west i mean that's like the greatest ending shot of any movie ever um (laughs) Which also sort of harkens back to this in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, that's the thing. Like this film, you watch it now and it's like, this is the prototype for North by Northwest. Like as much as Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. the wrong man thriller is something he does a lot. But this film, it's uh, it's pacing. It's sort of plot that makes sense in a broad sense. But in sort of the details of thinking through what the specifics of the spy narrative are, it's like, I don't really know what's happening but it's on a moment to moment basis it's fine that's what matters mm-hmm. um you know the the way that the main character the main villain rather is sort of this like dastardly villain but uh, has the veneer of like societal uh being like high class gentleman like not mr so and so could never do anything wrong um even like scenes of like characters running through open spaces and planes being involved it's like man right. it's all there um <laughs> But the other thing that's interesting and, and tying hearkening to the moment of the the scream is how Hitchcock would start to there's a meta quality to it because it's making you aware of like filmmaking and and film form and the and and the sort of artifice of it. But once you get into like the 50s in particular with Rear Window and Vertigo, he's making films that are in a meta way about like the act of film going. Like Rear Window is very mm-hmm. much about like voyeuristically looking out of a screen um and 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 the pleasures of that vertigo is all about a sort of observer who projects all of their own fantasies onto the object that they're gazing at from afar um so he starts to really become interested in that at like a narrative level as time goes by um but here you see him playing with it more in just a just on a sort of formal elements level yeah that's pretty cool it's been a long time since i've seen this i seem to remember like I had to ease my way into it. I remember like the beginning was a little, little weak, um, just kind of boring, <laughs> I guess. Hmm. It took me, it took me a while. Like by, by the end, I was like, okay, this is, this is a pretty cool movie, but I remember it took a while for me to get into the movie. And I don't, I don't really remember the specifics though, unfortunately, because it's been a long time since I've actually sat down and watched it. You think learning that in the first five minutes, our hero is a Canadian would have won you over. Oh. Um, <laughs> Right at the beginning, they got the the um, I don't remember what his name is the, but it's like Mister something or other, and he's like knows all these facts, right? And they're asking oh, that, him yeah. like stuff, and the guy asks like, "What's the distance between Winnipeg and Montreal?" And it's like, "Oh, Canadian, sir!" And all the British people clap for him, um, <laughs> and it comes up here and there, and it's interesting because on some level it doesn't really matter, like it's he doesn't need to be Canadian, yeah, um. But I do wonder, like, it, it does seem, it's a choice they call attention to, and it does seem appropriate when you're dealing with a story about spies and characters who are not who they appear to be and which sort of, what nationality you are and what, how that affects what your goals are. And uh, the fact that he's kind of an outsider, but he's not an American, which probably would have been the more typical choice, which would have, I think, made him feel more of an outsider. A Canadian feels a bit more acceptable in that space than a Yank would, I think. Um yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot going on in this uh, this seemingly very simple, very just sort of entertaining, exciting thriller. Um, but there's a lot under the surface if you're interested in unpacking those things. And if you're not, it's just a, a rousing adventure and a lovely time. Yeah, it is, and it is seeing good scene. I mean, I say Hitchcock at his roots, even though he was doing 
quite a few films before this. Like, it's not like this is his first kick of the cat either. No, but it is. I think it is like a transitional point, though. It is like an yeah. important. And I think of his films in this period, like I said, of his 30s films, it's probably my favorite. Uh, there's a couple I'd like to rewatch still uh, and, and watch. But uh, right now, this stands tall as my favorite Hitchcock of the 30s. It's just yeah. so fun. Is. I'm a pretty big fan of The Lady Vanishes myself. It's really good, too. That would be number two. I like that yeah. movie a lot. Yeah, so. I really do. Yeah, good pick. I like it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, okay, I guess I can go to mine, which is uh, from 1934's The Thin Man. Um, so this is... It's, it's a detective story, but it's more a comedy. But it's it's interesting because it like when you start the movie, it seems like it's just a straight up murder mystery. And the comedy comes in a little bit later once we're actually introduced to our main characters. And our main characters, of course, are Nick and Nora, uh, played by William Powell and Myrna Loy, who are kind of a famous pairing of that of that time because they ended up making a whole bunch of these movies. Uh, so the moment I want to talk about is... Like I said, we we end up getting to know this couple. They're a married couple. We end up getting to know them a little bit later into the film, later than you'd think, because they are your protagonists. They are your main characters. Uh, but when we do, we meet them, and they're uh, they're a married couple, and you get the sense that they've been married for not a too long of a time, but they've known each other for a long time. You can tell because they've got very good chemistry. I mean, the chemistry is what makes the movie. That's that's the the selling point. Um. And the moment I want to talk about is this little scene where they're they're in bed, but of course this is the 1930s, so they have separate beds <laughs> in the same bedroom. That's just the way it was, um, to you know, to not make anybody mad, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and so they end up getting uh, Nora's not sleeping, and she's she ends up waking up waking up her husband Nick. And she's like, uh, Nick, are you sleeping? Yes. Okay, good. Because I have something to ask you. <laughs> so so he wakes up uh, and he's like, okay, do you want me to get a, get you a drink? He's like, no. Okay, well, I'm going to go get myself one. And <laughs> he goes and fixes himself a drink. It's probably like two in the morning. And he wait, he's just woken up. The first thing he does is ask his wife if she wants a drink and goes and pours himself a drink. Because kind of the funny joke here is that these two are definitely on some level alcoholics and <laughs> high functioning though <laughs> yes high functioning alcoholics. very competent <laughs> and so that's kind of a running gag throughout the um throughout the movie is the fact that they are just constantly drinking and and loving every minute of it like they're um it's just their lifestyle they just are a very uh social couple and they love having a good time even in the middle of the night when they're about to have a conversation, they got to have a drink. And so, of course, he goes and pours himself a drink. And then when he comes back and sits down, she's like, actually, I will take that drink and then just takes it from him. And it's a, it's a nice little scene. It happens pretty early on after we get to know them. And I think it's a I, it just stands out to me. Like when I think back, you, of course, think that this is a really fun pair, um, this husband and wife couple and when i think of a specific moment this is the one that always pops into mind because i think it really establishes who they are it establishes their chemistry really well because it's all full of back and forth it establishes like <laughs> the fact that they just love drinking which is which is a very fun aspect of their characters um and it's and yeah it, but more importantly it's their relationship that it, you really start to to buy into the fact that these two are just so comfortable with each other and they goof around with each other and they wise talk each other all the time. And it's just a fun relationship to watch. Nice. Like you just spend the whole movie just anytime they're not on screen, you're like, okay, when do they get back on screen? Cause I just want to watch these two play off of each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a really good choice for highlighting their, certainly their banter. And I do like that. It's this moment you're, choosing that highlights the drinking component of their characters because one i think it's interesting that even while they're sort of obeying the rules of the production code of like sleeping in separate beds there's an element of like 
of um sort of uh transgression in their or at least rule breaking in their like it's not officially breaking the code rules but there's some deviance in them drinking the way they are and carrying on with no consequence so they're sort of uh they're getting away with something even though and it, it makes the film feel a little bit daring even though it's being reined in in these other ways and in a weird way it actually kind of helps support the weirdness now if you watch the film and you don't have the context of the production code as a viewer and you're just like why are they in separate beds but then it's also like the <laughs> fact that they're getting drinks at two in the morning it's like it's just this weird couple you know it kind it of is. feeds into the the overall strange atmosphere of just like this heightened strange but really charming and interesting relationship um and i also think it gets to a certain fantasy of like um being able to socially drink without the consequences of of social drinking and playing that to that extreme where you can get up in two in the morning to get some alcohol and it's not sad and gross but you're yeah. still good looking william powell and myrna loy and you're still charming and, and banter full and you know um yeah it, it's a really great bit of both banter but also the sort of like the, the fantasy of projecting yourself to being nick and nora because they are like <laughs> the aspirational couple of classic hollywood <laughs> yeah um, they're pretty cool like she buys them a bb gun for <laughs> for christmas which is just a weird <laughs> choice too yeah um i've been meaning to rewatch this one actually and you're making a good uh case for why i should although as you're talking and you're mentioning like the banter it's like we should have got nick and nora meet the marx brothers come on <laughs> that would have been great <laughs> The ultimate showdown. William Powell and Groucho Marx in the same frame. Oh, the possibilities. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting movie because it's like they really do play up the murder mystery of it. Like at at first, you think that that's all the movie is. It doesn't even seem like a comedy for the first uh, I don't know twenty minutes or so. Like it's it is oddly paced in that way. Like it's it's uh it does seem a little bit weird, but once you get to to these two playing off of each other, it doesn't matter. You're fine. <laughs> One, I think that's something that stands out too, is like they are competent at solving the mystery, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, part of the appeal. It's not just that you have these sort of funny characters in a serious situation. It's that they're yeah, funny. Yeah, it's not but Inspector Clouseau. It's... Right, yeah. yeah. They're good at their job. And that kind of... I don't want that's not necessarily better than having the bumbler at the center of it because the bumbler can be fun too, but it's a different quality that, uh, and again, part of like you laugh with them, I find, or you, if you're laughing at them, it's like you're laughing at the expense of one, but to the benefit of the other because like they got in a good jab or something, right? But it's always in like sort of good fun and, and meant with love. Um, and it like again, like the idea of like. You know, you don't watch the Pink Panther and go, I wish I was Clouseau. But I think you do watch um, the Thin Man and wish you were Nick and or Nora because yeah, they are definitely. like aspirational. Like you want to be funny like them, smart like them, and also, you know, social and a, a partier like them. Um, you know, basically it's that bit in The Simpsons when it's like, Homer, do you remember the party last night? And he remembers it as being like, you know, <laughs> yes, like, like a New Yorker <laughs> magazine cover. <laughs> I'm going to slip out of these clothes and into a dry martini. Ha 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 That's the fantasy of what, you know, the Thin Man offers. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> the reality boy. is what actually happens to Homer in that episode. <laughs> so, yeah, really, yeah. this is a fun choice. I've been meaning to rewatch this, and it's funny you mentioned the pacing, because I think that's what threw me when I first saw it, because I wasn't... That's understandable. I don't, I don't even know if I knew that much about it. I was like, oh, it's like a famous movie from the 30s. And so early on, I thought, oh, I guess it's like a famous detective story. And then it's like, wait, it's not. <laughs> so now that I know what I'm getting into and I know like I've, I really, really like both those actors a lot. And um, whenever you watch TCM, there'll be not whenever, but often when you watch TCM, there'll be little trailers or bumpers for Thin Man related stuff, often for the first movie, but also for some of the sequels. And they always are just like such a delight when they show up. So yeah, definitely. Um, and it's nice seeing like healthy married couple right they're not i don't know it seems like on screen marriages are generally portrayed negatively mm -hmm. i would say for the most part and i don't know if it's just because hollywood lives don't lead to healthy marriages that often and so the people who are making the movies have a more of a bitter view towards it but 
Yeah, uh, it's funny you say that because uh, Be Kind Rewind, the YouTuber, her video on Myrna Loy is partially deals with how Myrna Loy was known as like the perfect wife of classic Hollywood cinema. Um, and she talks about the Thin Man movies being like the most sort of harmonious marriage in classic Hollywood, because you're right, like most love stories in film in this period and probably in general, they deal with like falling in love. Mm-hmm, not so right. much being like a, a, a married an established unit. relationship yeah right and then if you're doing a story about an established relationship where's the drama usually the drama comes from the relationship being in a state of crisis you know i think it stands out that in a way one of the most optimistic movies about romance involving married people that i've seen is igmar bergman's scenes from a marriage which is famous for being like which like actually is theorized this leading to a rise in divorces in Sweden when it came out, (laughs) which is not proven, but it's actually a very cynical film about marriage, but it's a very optimistic film about romance and people. It's a very, the final installment of that film is surprisingly lovely, but the point stands that you're right. Like movies that are about married couples are usually like, there's some sort of conflict or crisis they're dealing with. Um, Because that drives stories as conflict, but yeah. And in this the one, fact that the conflict is external in this one. Yes. Is... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the the problem is not the falling marriage. It's the sort of it's the crime. It's the yeah. murder, which is fun, too, because you get like it, it's an interesting way of like offsetting sort of the levels of um, stakes and tension in the story because they're there and they're not like a complete sort of afterthought per se, but you kind of can invest into them up to a point and then still just kind of have fun with the um the breezy main characters so yeah have you seen any of the sequels you know what i haven't which is weird because i love this movie so much like why wouldn't i want more but i don't know i just never have watched the sequels i don't know too much about them but i i think at least a couple of them are pretty good from what i hear i imagine it's diminishing returns as you go down the line but yeah I'm sure, but it does seem like in terms of like old film series, one of the more potentially durable ones, because you do have this strong foundation and strong character Mm -hmm. basis to work off of. So, yeah, yeah, I think I should give them a try some point here. Do you have the first one on Blu-ray? You betcha. Okay, I was going to say, I know you're it's against your your moral code, uh, but if there is a box set. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, just got the first one. Sorry. Okay. Um, would you <laughs> recommend that Blu-ray? Um, yeah, I think I can't really remember what the quality is like, but I think it's you know pretty good. Okay. Cool. Maybe from the thirties. Yeah. Right there on. You. Well, from uh, drinking to another harmful vice that kills you but makes you look really cool, we're going to talk about smoking <laughs> and uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. I was hesitant to put this because I'm like, we just got out of October and it's like such a cliche if I just immediately put in a universal monster movie. But isn't that why we decided not to do the early 30s? Because it would just all be monster movies. I think so. And I still (laughs) can't help myself. (laughs) I love this movie. It's so good. Um, But the moment I want to talk about isn't strictly horror related. So I think I can get away with it. Yeah, it's when um, the monster is staying with the blind man in and they're sort of become friends and roommates. And it's right, like he, he's showing him like he plays him music and he's showing him like human pleasures. But then he shows him the greatest pleasure of all, which is smoking a fat cigar with the boys. <laughs> and it's mainly the one shot that's just so funny. And I think it's you can find it as a gif everywhere online, but where it's the monster and he's got like he's smoking and there's smoke everywhere, like coming out of his mouth. It's surrounding the room. And, you know, the blind man being like, smoking is good. And the monster being like, oh, good. He's just like, it's on a basic level. It's really funny. It's a, it's, it's shockingly funny given, you know, it's a, it's a monster movie, but James Whale, man, he had a good sense of humor. <laughs> but uh, so one, I just like it because I think it's fun. But I also think there's some interesting stuff going on here in terms of like contrasting it to the first Frankenstein where you have the scene of the monster sort of discovering earthly pleasure and beauty. It's like the flowers and the little girl by the pond and like the beauty of the natural world. And I think it's kind of a indicative of the film, the second film having a bit of a weirder edge where it's like, yeah, he's sort of lulled at first by the beauty of music. Here's the blind man playing on his violin. It's like, oh, it's 
it's beautiful what is that but then it <laughs> devolves into like he's having a smoke and you think about how like a couple of years later with pinocchio where it's like the boys on pleasure island and smoking is one of the horrible harmful vices and they're children so it obviously is different rules but i think there's something actually quite uh transgressive about the film kind of flaunting how these sort of deviant bad behaviors are actually kind of the best parts of being human there's some of the most fun parts about being alive um and i do wonder if that goes hand in hand with these films having a queer subtext now on one level you could read it as very freudian imagery you have these two men living together in the woods in secret with these big cigars in their mouth i don't think you need to be a film uh, scholar to sort of start to work unpack what that imagery might represent but even ignoring that sort of really literal read of what the imagery might be or maybe not literal is the right word but like really clearly symbolic what those images might mean just the idea that the film is very much reveling in a form of um enjoyment of what it means to be alive and what comes like the perks of being alive and it's not something that's really beautiful and noble and like you know, I like music or like flowers, the natural world, very like a poetic and beautiful things that it is something that's like deviant and frowned upon. And that would get you like dirty looks in the street from from uh, people who hold themselves above such things. I do think there's actually a, a queer subtext to that. And this idea of like James Whale as a gay man making the film and um, what he would define in his life as pleasurable being things that would be uh viewed as vices and and, and as uh, harmful and wrong within society. But actually those are some of the most enjoyable parts about being alive. And it's really funny to watch the monster smoke up and go good. So uh, yeah, that's my moment. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein smoking a cigar. That's awesome. Who would have thought you could pull so much out of smoking a cigar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like mm-hmm. it. Oh, good old Frankenstein. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> No, I think I think you actually make a really good point. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have jumped to that imagery right away, but <laughs> I didn't jump to it right away. To be fair, it took me a while to be like, "Wait a minute, there's an <laughs> yeah, essay I, here." <laughs> I do think the idea of you know vices as being, you know, something that would attract somebody who's learning to become human as pretty, yeah, pretty spot on. That'd be pretty, pretty important to. Uh, to establish, you know, that question of why are we the way we are? And that makes sense. And that's what Frankenstein is all about, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, really, it becomes a longstanding tradition. I mean, you look at E.T. getting drunk from beer in the fridge, like it's it's much quicker <laughs> and it's more played as like just kind of an innocent joke. But this I do think there's something there of like as much as it would be nice to think, you know, if like you met like an alien creature or something and it's like well what would it what would you show them for like what you know what it is means to be human it's like you might you know show them you know fine art you might play them some mozart eventually it's like well (laughs) these other things we do it's like junk food and alcohol and smoking and like and these things that are like frankly make up a lot of people's the pleasure in people's day-to-day lives um and I yeah, think I was just watching uh, the Banshees of Inisharan. I just went to see that this last week. Nice. And did you like it, it? Oh, I loved it. Yes, I did. Uh, it was, and it's about like just these simple Irishmen in a simple Irish town. And I'm like, okay, so he's done his work for the day. He's off. What's leisure activity going to be? Going to the pub and having a beer. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and I think you know. I think there's something fun about the way that this film is isn't like ashamed or embarrassed of that. It revels in it. And I think that's mm-hmm. and it also, I mean, it goes to show like because the Universal films, it's kind of interesting because I don't think James Whale necessarily thought that highly of his Universal Monster films. I think he was more proud of stuff like Showboat. Um, that's certainly how the the film Gods and Monsters portrays it. Not a great mm-hmm. film. Not sure I want to take it at its word, but you know, worth noting. But um you know, the Universal Monster movies, for the, they were not considered like prestige films. They were kind of trashy entertainments. And uh, this film really owns that in a way. I mean, it's interesting because they're kind of, they are literary adaptations. And one could argue that, uh, I'm not sure now that I think about it at the time, if like Frankenstein or Dracula, the originals might have been seen as being a bit more 
prestigious for their day, but certainly by the time you get to like the mummy's hand, the <laughs> <laughs> the sort of um, it's become a, it's clear what they're making, which is that they're yeah. just kind of making the schlock. Um, sometimes with a lot of skill and sometimes elevating it well above that label. Like, again, I don't view this movie as being lesser. I think it's one of the great movies ever made, this and the original Frankenstein. But they're not classy pictures. They are the cinematic equivalent of having a smoke, really. Right. And I think I just watched the first Frankenstein this October. Like, not for the first time, but just again, because I had to spin a while. I think Bride of Frankenstein does ask ask that what is it to be human question a little bit more than the original does. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the original is just more about him just stepping into the world in general. I think this one's a little bit more like how does Pinocchio become a real boy idea. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. I mean, the original feels more like Victor or Henry, I suppose he's called in the movie, Henry Frankenstein's movie, whereas Bride really feels more like the monster's movie. Yeah, that's a um, good point. That makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, it's more like him living with his consequences in the first one, and this one is yeah, mm-hmm. the monster coming to terms with his own existence. Yeah, which is emphasized by a good old cigar, mm-hmm. good old Cuban. It's it's a pretty great scene. Um, yeah, it's funny too because like even thinking about how these films are looked at, I think by certain literary types. Um, who will hold the novel in high esteem, but they kind of look down on the movie. Like, I think what really started my intense sort of attachment to the Frankenstein films was being in a first-year English class in my undergrad and the professor being, because we read Frankenstein, and the professor would often be very dismissive in lectures of the movies. Like, and there was the silly movie in the 30s that people remember this, this pitter-patter for the pause. <laughs> he was a nice man, but, you know. He was a little bit annoying in the way he talked about Frankenstein to me. Um, Or, you know, I'm being unfair, but there was a certain, like, I felt a very much like, I don't think you're giving this film its full credit. And I'm sure he hadn't seen it in like several years and is just going off memory and the pop culture imagery. But I remember in many of my tutorials making the case for the sort of the film and and Bride by, uh, by extension being much closer to Shelley's vision in terms of theme than they're given credit for, even though the stories are completely different. Yeah, yeah, and my... I absolutely agree. <laughs> to the I think there's like... some bitterness there because, yeah, all these scholars who who love the original novel, because the movie and the imagery it created, like the whole zapping with electricity to make the monster and the bride with zigzags in her hair and everything, mm-hmm. comes from the movies. But that's the public's perception of what Frankenstein is, and I think they mm-hmm. rebel against that, and yeah. do, and for that reason, don't give the movies their due. I think that's a fair, uh, a fair assessment. Um, it made me laugh though because the prof sat in on a tutorial once, and the TA was straight up like, when she's introducing the class. I think I said something, and uh, after everyone said something, she talked a little bit about who the student was. And after I said something, she's like, "Oh, Daniel's been very, uh, very a big advocate for the films and how they're, you know, they do a lot." And I was like, <laughs> "Now he knows I'm there. like, this guy's <laughs> misrepresenting them. These movies are great." <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that's a good pick. I didn't know where you're going with when you just said smoking in the notes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I could find something of value to say about that scene because it would have been really easy to be like, it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> what well, is that as well? All right. Well, I guess I'll go to my to my second pick of the night, which is It Happened One Night, also from 1934. And this is, of course, good old Frank Capra. Um, this is the one that won the, uh, best picture that year. And okay. So the moment I want to talk about, I have a specific reason when I watched this. So I don't know, a few months ago, I kind of watched it again for the first time in a while. And when I was watching it, what I, I came across a scene that I really, really liked, but it's like just before the very famous hitchhiking scene. So the scene I want to talk about is uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Am I saying her name right? I think so. Yeah, I think I am. Um, Anyway, they're, you know, they're stranded out in the countryside somewhere and they are just kind of hanging around waiting for a car to pick them up. 
And he starts having this conversation about hitchhiking. And it's a very funny conversation because he's got like, he just talks like he's this expert in hitchhiking, almost like a Cliff Clavin type. I know everything about everything kind of guy at this moment. And he's got, he's like showing her all these different moves of how to hitchhike with his hands, all the, he's like, it's all about the thumb and how you use it. And he's show us all these different methods for hitchhiking. They all look ridiculous, but of course Clark Gable pulls it off because he's Clark Gable and and they just have this funny back and forth and she's just like, okay, whatever, you're ridiculous. And, and she's just kind of going along with it. It's a very fun conversation. And then, of course, it leads up to him trying and failing to hail a car. And then so, of course, she does her very famous hike up her skirt and immediately a car stops. And I kind of wanted to talk about this in the context of very, very famous moments in movies and what they mean to the public at large and what they mean to the people who know them actually know the moments and know the movies that they're from. Cause I don't know how famous it is. If you just ask somebody in the street about the hitchhiking scene, they probably wouldn't be able to, to say it, but for anybody who's got some sort of a foot in the door for movies. Yeah. That image is iconic. Yeah. The, 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 The stocking going up and just the leg and yeah. Yeah, it's very it's one of those very iconic movies or movie moments that a lot of people know. And I was kind of thinking, like, as I watch this scene, just how well the build up to that moment is. And so it makes that moment much more impactful because you have everything before it. And so somebody who only sees that image doesn't really get the whole picture. Um, And I guess I'm just saying I like having the whole picture because it just makes it a much more richer experience. And I contrast this, and I don't know if I'm going to make people mad by saying this, but I contrast this to Say Anything, where mm. the iconic image, of course, is John Cusack with the boom box, right? Holding it up outside the window or whatever. And when I watched that movie, that moment seemed like it was just thrown in. <laughs> and I, at least I felt that it has no context within the rest of the movie. You could pull that out and it whatever i don't know like i i just saw no point to the boombox scene and and say anything after watching the movie it's like there was no build-up to it that i or at least build up that grabbed me i don't know and i i take that back to this scene where you've got that whole conversation the hitchhiking conversation just really puts this into puts that famous moment into context and makes it feel a little bit more intimate and makes it feel earned in a way does that make any sense no i think it's i think it's an interesting point because i will say when i first saw this in the google doc i was like he has to be kidding Hitch- <laughs> the hitchhiking scene it's like <laughs> one of the most famous scenes of the decade but you actually you bring up a really really good point with regard to this conversation right before that is not immortalized but sets up the punchline yeah. Um, and the punchline is funnier in the movie with that context. Um, yeah, like if she just went and hiked up her skirt and stopped a car, I'd be like, oh, okay. Mm. But the fact that he she's doing it against all of his bravado and everything, yes. that's what makes it work. It's it's the punchline to a joke. It's um, And it also, in a way, makes it, because the scene is so iconic, it makes the scene almost funnier because if you're watching the film, you probably know it's coming. So when they start talking about the proper way to Hitchcock, you go, oh, I see. Like it's it kind She's of makes about to it, own them. Yeah, it's like a preemptive like laugh, like you're waiting for the the joke and in, in the sort of anticipatory way. Um, yeah, and I also think you bring up a good point about how classic movie moments that are um, made into these iconic images, but that it's the surrounding framework that gives them weight and sometimes can make them when you put them in their proper context um, changes the meaning of what you think those images are, which this isn't strictly Mm -hmm. that, but I was thinking too about how like everyone knows you talking to me from taxi driver, but it's often quoted in the context of like, it's like an eighties action movie line, but you watch the film and it's really not. And I think really the, the key is right after that, he starts doing his monologue about listen, you effers, you screw heads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, but he screws up. He starts giving that speech and he trips over his words and the film like it stops and starts again. And it's like, that is really what this is. It's not like a tough action movie hero guy. It's a guy who wants to be this, you know, sort of 
badass, you know, take no prisoner like attitude can change the world character, but he's actually kind of a schmuck and he's not good at it. Like that's way more reflective of who Travis is. And it's, it's worth thinking about the ways in which the sort of big classic iconic movie moments are either supported by um, the the sort of buildup or the framework that contextualizes them, or in some ways are more complex than their sort of uh, historical iconic image is in the first place. Or in the case of say anything in your take where it's just this random image that though powerful in isolation has no Am I wrong on that? What are your thoughts on the say anything moment? You might be right. I haven't seen the film in nearly (laughs) long enough to really give a firm answer. Um, The main reason it's weird is because it becomes complicated because it's like people talk about like that's actually a very creepy and overbearing gesture and it only works in the film because we know that she doesn't actually want to break up with him, but her dad kind of makes her, I think anyway, something like that. But then he doesn't know that. So from his perspective, he got dumped and just won't leave this girl alone. So that's weird. Don't do that. Teenage boys see that film and it's like, don't give up. It's like, no, give up, move on. (laughs) Again, watching it without context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think you make a really good point. And it's also worth thinking about how, the sort of big impression sort of leaving images are not just because they're great images, although that certainly helps. It is because mm-hmm. of how they are built up to in the, in the film. It's the little moments that make those, those big moments matter. Yeah. Yeah. Like Brody saying, we're going to need a bigger boat only works because you just experienced what he experienced. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had that build up to that famous line. Like, yeah, I think most that's a good point for most of these things. And so I guess what are we saying? Go watch the movies, don't you? <laughs> don't um, just know the moments. I guess so. I mean, we're saying yeah. that in part. I, I mean, I think it just it goes to, it goes to show to me how much work goes into mm-hmm. those iconic moments, you know? Um, like how much you have to do to earn that that it is it's more than just the moment itself. Yeah. There's so much surrounding that moment that gives it weight that if you took like if you took the the hitchhiking conversation away, would that image still translate? Would it would still it hold been... power in the culture? Yeah, I and would like, argue not. Probably not. Like it's it's a it's a striking image on its own. Colbert had nice legs um, and the cutting of the driver very frantically stopping is funny in its own terms, but it is funnier because of the buildup. Yeah. Um, and because of how it serves the greater story of like kind of similar to uh, the Thin Man, the banter between the two characters. Obviously, it's more heated in in the heat of the night or in the heat of the night. It happened. <laughs> it is night. more heated it's there. <laughs> very heated in the heat of the night because it's you know they don't fall in love at the end. They maybe become <laughs> friends at the end, but it's <laughs> um, and it happened one night. It's uh, you know that's a much more heated banter because it's kind of that. Uh, from enemies to lovers essentially uh story but um yeah it's that it's not just a fun joke it's not just an interesting image it's not even just the punchline to a joke it's about the relationship between these two people yeah it's their back and forth their competitiveness yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so i just thought that might be a good thing to talk about and i think it was so there we go i think so too um yeah now you've got me thinking about just like that might be a good topic for a future episode is like the small details specifically pertaining to big moments. True. Um, Cause I think there's a lot one could talk about. So there's a lot of great famous moments out there. <laughs> there is certainly that. <laughs> yeah. Can't argue with that. <laughs> no. Cool. We should throw that out as a, as a shout out to everybody to tweet at us. What are, what are your famous movie moments that you know that you think are enriched by their context? I mean, I would argue most of them, almost all of them, but yeah, tweet at us with some specifics, anybody out there. I think that'd be cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's interesting too, because shutter, and I didn't finish it, but I knew you watched that 101 scariest movie moments list. And, um, I haven't watched all of it yet, but it's interesting because to think about how those scenes like 
because that's kind of what we're talking about here of like just mm-hmm. distilling all film down to like the the iconic images um and they do provide a lot of context like they're not just like well this bit was really scary and then they move on like it's a yeah. it's a good show um but thinking about how much work goes into making those um iconic scenes have the, that power so. yeah yeah that was that was pretty cool i liked watching it actually a couple they shared a couple moments that we highlighted on the show actually throughout the years so i thought nice. that was kind of cool too uh shutter you can send us our check that's uh, right <laughs> reach out on twitter and we'll uh provide details for mailing retransfer <laughs> if you prefer we'll you know we're flexible at least give us a free subscription <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> We'll we'll awesome. we'll say watch Shutter every episode, even if it's like we're doing our favorite romantic comedies. Like, don't forget to watch Shutter. Well, we did bring it up in a mid thirties. So. <laughs> we did, we did. Hey, Bride of Frankenstein. I can't get That's away right. from Universal Horror. Yeah, do it. I'm the only person to ever bring up one of the Mummy sequels, and I don't even remember which one, in a positive context on a podcast. All right. Well, I think that's gonna. This is a short episode. This is our shortest in like two years. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay awesome. though. Yeah. 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 Gotta cut it down. And people had need to make the time for the two hour and 40 minute Black Panther out there. So it's true. Yeah. And we're in not just that, but we got Tar also two hours, 40 minutes. Avatar is um, going to be what? Three. Oh, something? yeah. Three. So- yeah. And I love Cameron's quote of like, people can just go to the bathroom. It's fine. They can get he's up to go wrong. pee. Yeah. He's never wrong. The best was when he was asked about why he wasn't uh doing the underwater with just CGIing in the water like Little Mermaid. And he's just like, I don't know, maybe because I want it to look good. <laughs> it's like that literally his exact quote. Yeah. Like, what man. Yeah, he f- forgot that Disney's technically paying for this stuff now, but that's okay. <laughs> good for you, James. Can't wait for way of water. I am excited. All right. Well, how was our episode? So again, tweet at us, like we just said, what are your big moments that you like the context or the build up to? And what are your favorite 30s movies moments? Mm-hmm. Um, so What's at your favorite under- Hitchcock from the 30s? Yeah. Yeah. Whose side are you on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cinema and second civil war where we both very mildly disagree. Which on- trade movie do you like best? Or just which Hitchcock film from the 30s is your favorite? Is it the 39 Steps, like Dan? Or is it The Lady Vanishes, which Dan has a second? Like, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm willing to bet if you had to do your list of 30s Hitchcock, 39 Steps would probably be at worst number three. Yeah, probably. Yep. (laughs) You got it. It's the most polite disagreement. Yeah, as a tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds or send us an email, which I realize I haven't checked in a while. So if you have sent an email <laughs> lately, I'll check on that right away. <laughs> cinema and seconds at gmail.com. Yeah, maybe we'll just do a mailbag episode if there's like dozens and dozens. That would be awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's that. You got anything else to share, Dan? Uh, No, Um, hmm. I, I don't think I've done any video stuff since the Q&A, which I talked about already, I think so. Right um yeah watch rewatch all my old videos uh but not the death of the american gangster film that one has enough views and it's not monetized so watch some of my other videos <laughs> um because my newer ones are both a i'll make money on them and that's nice and b i think they're they're better so cool okay well thanks for listening everybody i've been ian and i'm daniel and we'll see you next time